You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We're joined now by Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, really good person to talk to for a variety of reasons. Uh, Congressman, I want to get into this uh, proposal that's coming from the White House, but first I have to get your takeaway from the CPI report that came out this morning, uh, two months in a row that looked not too bad. Uh, What does that mean in your view for the Fed's September meeting and and the, the broader monetary outlook? Well, Jack, it's good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation to be on the program. Yes, I think we saw the continuation of the trend that inflation is high, it's above the uh, the uh, Fed's goal of 2%. It's stubborn, but it's not increasing. Uh, and therefore, I think the Fed will be uh, cautious uh, going forward. But I don't see rates coming down. So as I said uh, after the June report, I think you'll see rates, short-term rates remain high. We want to finish the job. We want inflation beaten because it's a thief. It takes from every one of our families. Uh, so I don't expect rates to go down, but their uh, rate uh, their rate of increases I expect to slow. So we may see a pause in, in September based on other data that the Fed considers. I've got to ask, Congressman, about the political angle. We heard uh, the, the following comment from President Biden on the politics of inflation. Let's take a listen to what he had to say, and I'll want your reaction. I believe the words, word for word from the president, was that, Inflation's coming down, but Republicans have to find something to blame him for, and they'll find something. Is is that the case? Are, are Republicans moving away from inflation as a political liability for Democrats? Or is this, I mean, you just mentioned inflation is still high. What is the political angle there? Yeah, I think inflation's high, and I think the reason for inflation is that we had too accommodative a monetary policy coming out of the pandemic. We didn't take our foot off the gas by raising rates and stopping the $100 billion of bond buying soon enough. And you combine that with Joe Biden approving $10 trillion in extra spending uh, for the next 10-year budget window. So we're running a $1.6 trillion deficit through this month. That even isn't even through the full fiscal year, where the original forecast was to have about a $1.5 trillion deficit for the entire fiscal year. So Federal spending combined with two lax monetary policy has produced this 40-year high in inflation. It's stubborn. It's tough. The Fed's taking the right steps, but they're in the face of this uh, accommodative fiscal spending by the Biden administration. 
Well, let's talk more about accommodative fiscal spending because there's a proposal. I think we're going to see something formal today, but our, our colleagues at Bloomberg have reported a request coming for more funding. Uh, what's what's your response to that proposal? Bottom line is, where are Republicans on this? Republicans support kicking Russia out of Ukraine and supporting Ukrainians' effort for sovereignty and freedom of their country. And we've seen that in a number of votes over just the past few weeks where overwhelmingly the Congress is supportive of the fight in Ukraine and to kick uh, Russia off their sovereign territory. With that said, because of these huge, unprecedented uh, uh, spending deficits of Joe Biden now pushing uh, well over $1.7, $1.8 trillion per year, unsustainable, you do find Republicans saying, look, find that money, that $25 billion, from reallocation inside the existing budget caps. Don't just take the easy way out and do a supplemental. So I think the issue is less about Ukraine, wildfires, supporting Taiwan, and more about doing it inside those budget caps that uh, President Biden agreed to with Speaker McCarthy. So do you see this as an attempt not just to address those needs for Ukraine and disaster aid, but an, an attempt to circumvent the debt limit deal? Is, is the debt limit deal uh, being undermined already? I think you could argue that, uh, Jack, and I, I agree with Jordan's reporting on the Senate seems less concerned here. They've gotten all their appropriation bills out of committee. Uh, but I just I want to I want to express my view that a majority in the House supports Ukraine funding for Taiwan, funding for disasters. But with two trillion dollars annualized in extra spending more than we were spending in 2019, uh, a majority in the House in the Republican conference believe we ought to try to uh, get that uh, twenty five billion dollars funding through those budget caps not just take the, as I say, the easy way out of a supplemental. But Jordan laid it out. You've got senators that disagree with that. So this will be an important debate when we go back to into session in early September. And I should ask specifically with an eye on disaster aid, because I know FEMA's disaster relief fund is running low on funding. It's projected to run out of money before the end of the fiscal year. We saw the deadly wildfires in Hawaii. Do you believe that what we are seeing in Hawaii and the uh, the damage and destruction there could that uh, possibly lead to a greater request? I, I'm I'm curious if there's a possibility that 12 billion won't be enough for FEMA. Is that the case? You know, I'm not sure about that, Jack. I think we need to hear from the governor of Hawaii, local officials uh, on Maui, as to what they think their local resources and the need for FEMA assistance to be, and then hear that report back. So I, I would be hesitate to uh, take that hypothetical. But look, it's a it's a new disaster, and it certainly wasn't in the uh, planning considerations of the of the people who made uh, the current request. Now, a little more broadly, Congressman, I have to ask, I've always got an eye on September 30th, uh, and, and earlier this summer we heard comments from Representative Bob Good saying Republicans should not be afraid of a shutdown. Let's listen to, to what he had to say about this. We should not fear a government shutdown. Most of what we do up here is bad anyway. Most of what we do up here hurts the American people. When we do stuff to the American people while promising to do things for the American people, essential operations continue. 85 percent, as Mr. Biggs has just uh, given me that number, continues. Most American people won't even miss if the government is shut down temporarily. So I know Congressman French Hill and Congressman Bob Good are not necessarily 
the same person, but Congressman Hill, do you see an appetite for a, a shutdown? And do you agree with that assessment of the effects of a shutdown? Well, I think the Congress and the executive branch have had a number of shutdowns, uh, many since the 1980s. And I don't think that you've seen uh, government uh, not keep doing its essential services to a majority of the people, and they are typically resolved in, in, a, in a short period of time. So I understand where Bob Good is coming from. But look, government shutdowns uh, shouldn't happen. We ought to get our job done. Uh, we ought to get the appropriations bills passed on time. We ought to do a, a continuing resolution if we need more time in order to uh, debate uh, this. We know what the budget cap should be. We should hit those caps. Uh, and so I would hope uh, that Congress on both sides of the Capitol, both the Senate and the House, can get our work done, get a plan in place, uh, and avoid uh, any kind of a government shutdown. Have House Republicans um, given the Senate perhaps a stronger hand in negotiations by not quite marking up their appropriations bills to the limits set in the debt limit uh, uh, deal, but rather under it? I think the answer to that question is yes, but I'm disappointed that we uh, broke for the August uh, congressional recess period with only one bill having come across the House floor. I wish we could have uh, gotten more of those bills across the House floor. You're right. They were marked in committee at a slightly more conservative level in terms of total spending than the budget caps deal, whereas the Senate uh, marked their bills under Democratic leadership pretty much at the cap. So I think that allows us to have a good, solid negotiation on a bicameral basis on 2024 spending. Uh, And we ought to work toward that. So uh, if we want maximum negotiating clout, though, Jack, we need to pass all those bills across the House floor, uh, and that will give us the maximum negotiating clout uh, to the answer to your, uh, your question. Now, Congressman, I should ask, aside from the September to-do list, uh, I'm curious about the activity of the uh, Oversight Committee, the allegations made about money going to President Biden's uh, son, Hunter Biden, and his business associates, uh, and the idea that seems to be taking hold, at least among House Republicans, that this could be considered effectively a bribe uh, to the president. Do you do you see anything worthwhile in what is coming out of the Oversight Committee, especially given the references from Republican, leaderships, uh, Republican leadership to the idea of a, an impeachment inquiry? Does anything rise to that level? Look, I think what we need to do in our uh, Judiciary Committee on uh, how to reform the FBI and in the Oversight Committee under Jamie Comer, uh, investigating the uh, uh, corruption allegations towards Hunter Biden and the Biden-connected family and associates, we need to do the homework. We need to have the hearings. We need to have the testimony. We need to collaborate uh, the assertions uh, in and around those allegations and do our homework, because this is exactly what the American people did not see uh, during the two, uh, the Trump impeachment, particularly in and around, uh, you know, the Russia investigation by Mueller and the impeachment investigation around the Ukrainian phone call. That's the irony of this, is that we want to do our homework. So my, my view as one member of Congress is let's let the Judiciary Committee uh, and the Oversight Committee do their work. Let's see where the trail leads and then follow it appropriately. 
Thank you so much, Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, with insights on the inflation CPI report, on the upcoming request for more funding for Ukraine, uh, and everything else on Capitol Hill. Coming up, we're going to go to our panel, Jeannie Shinzano and Rick Davis, for more. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, you heard it from the congressman, French Hill out of Arkansas, insistent to make the point that House Republicans also, not just Senate Republicans, but House Republicans also support Ukraine. That is relevant given the fact that the president is asking for $25 billion in additional funding. $13 billion of that relates to Ukraine. $12 billion uh, is disaster aid. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick sitting in for Joe Matthew today, and I'm here with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zano and Rick Davis. Love to get their analysis on, uh, I, I think, a, an interesting interview with a House Republican in French Hill. Uh, first, guys, I, I want to touch on his take on the CPI report, uh, acknowledging this could lead to a pause in the rate increases when the Fed gets back uh, and meets in September, but not uh, not a drop. Uh, and still saying that this is still high. It's not a good thing for President Biden. Uh, Rick Davis, I'm curious what you make of the political response to the CPI reports we've seen for the last two months. Is this less of an albatross politically for President Biden? Uh, it's certainly starting to sound like Republicans and Democrats are starting to say the same thing about the future of the Fed uh, and, and their interaction with rates and and what the political uh, net effect is going to be. Because French Hill, I mean, he, he, he could have been Joe Biden talking about the fact that it's great that we're seeing stability in inflation, but uh, more work to be done. I mean, it, it sounds like right out of the White House talking points. I, I would say. Uh, there are other Republicans who are focused on, you know, shelter costs and those uh, continuing to go up and be high uh, and, and tend to politicize that a little bit more. But but I do think some of the air is out of the tire when it comes to uh, the uh, inflation being such a political hot potato. 
I, I don't know if this necessarily makes the phrase Bidenomics a winner, but Jeannie, I've got to get your take. Is that uh, is that a winning phrase if inflation doesn't uh, it doesn't spike back up again? If unemployment doesn't start to spike? If this is as soft a landing as we could have uh, seen, given everything we've seen lately? It, what what does Bidenomics mean, and how effective is that phrase politically, Jeannie? Well, we've heard the president and his surrogates out on the stump just this last week um, and before he was on vacation trying to tell us what it means. We've got signs up now across the country telling us the, about the investments that they made under this, you know, a, idea of Bidenomics. And I do think the good news on inflation, or at least the positive news when you put it into context, is something that does help the president here. But that, you know, the White House knows, the campaign knows, they have a long way to go. The poll numbers on Biden as it pertains to the economy have never been good. The inflation news is, of course, very welcome, provided that it stays. And they've now got to do the really hard job of telling people across the country what all those investments mean. You, in your great interview with, with Representative Hill, he just mentioned the fact that it is in part due to the amount that was invested into the economy in an effort to get us out of the pandemic that accounts for the economic challenges we're facing. And that's something that Republicans will continue to say. And Biden has got to make the case why this was necessary, why when it didn't happen in 08, we suffered, and why we are going to be able to have this soft landing that he's been promising, or at least the Fed's been promising. Well, that's an important point, Jeannie, because there there is not even just in a political sense, there's a fight happening over fiscal policy. And the congressman did say, OK, Republicans want to help Ukraine. We want to respond to natural disasters. But if we have to give an extra twenty five billion dollars, we should offset that. So you're, you're finding $25 billion in cuts elsewhere if people like French Hill get their way. That is not what the president wants. Uh, Rick, do you see that as a realistic outcome, or is the easiest path for Congress just spending more and allowing emergency spending without getting into offsets? Well, I thought Jordan Fabian really laid it out well. And, it, you know, there's a difference between the Senate's view of this and the House's view. The Senate has already finished their appropriations work and they've done it within hitting the, the budget caps, which is 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 a really good sign that there's there's a mark out there. Right. OK, we've got the budget caps in the House, too, but they haven't done the work. As French Hill pointed out, they've only passed one appropriation bill before the break in August. And so they've got a lot more work to do to catch up to where the Senate is. So they can't actually say they're going to come in under those budget caps until they actually do it. And then that goes to a conference. Uh, the fact that we have budget caps and it's already been agreed to is a huge step forward in, in this process. The Senate said, hey, we want a deal that if we are going to fund Ukraine, we're going to do it outside the budget caps. And so the Senate believes within the Senate, they have a different point of view than I think our House conferees would have. So yeah, there'll be a negotiation, but I actually think this is a pretty reasonable number that the Biden administration put down, only $13 billion for Ukraine, uh, at least that's what we anticipate, and more for disaster assistance. Disaster assistance tends to get attention, right? That tends to be outside of most of the budgeting process once you've got FEMA numbers set in the, in the appropriations bills. Uh, and clearly the disasters in places like uh, Hawaii right now are going to draw attention and, and I would imagine uh, support in both the House and the Senate. But the bouncing ball will be certainly in the Republican caucus 
in the House of Representatives Ukraine funding. And I was impressed by French Hill's almost Sherman-esque statement that we will support Ukraine uh, funding. I, I think that'll be an interesting conversation they have when they caucus. Yeah, I should ask, Jeannie, do you buy that? Do you think that French Hill is entirely speaking for House Republicans, or is he maybe trying to uh, will something into existence with regard to a different wing of the House Republican conference on Ukraine? Yeah, the, the, the word, that term that came to my mind was wishful thinking to a certain extent, because we just saw 70 Republicans in the House vote against it. And, you know, I have, uh, you know, no question in my mind that Representative Hill and ma many, in fact, I think he's right that most Republicans in the House are supportive of Ukraine, are supportive of the funding, you know, and many hope to get offsets. But the reality is they are facing hardliners. And you played the clip um, by, by uh, Good. There's people like Chip Roy, many other members of the Freedom Caucus, rather, for whom, you know, spending um, without dramatic cuts elsewhere is just a non-starter. And for, for Democrats, this is really Republican on Republican violence. So, you know, as Rick was just talking about, this is going to be Republicans in the Senate versus some of these Republicans in the House. And they're going to have to battle this out. And of course, they're going to have to, if the House moderates hope to get this done, depend on supports from Democrats. And you're already hearing some Democrats, some of them say, yeah, we may help. We've done it before. We'll do it again. Others saying on, you know, what basis would we have any incentive to help here? So it's going to be a sticky, <laughs> it's going to be a sticky situation when they get back. And I think we're looking forward to a whole bunch of continuing resolutions to try to get some of this important work done. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think is the real deadline. Uh, I mean, September 30th is the deadline that Congress often ignores. Uh, Rick, if uh, one, I'm curious, do you think there's likely to be a shutdown? And two, are you worried about September 30th or do you think this gets kicked into December and that's when it gets messy? Yeah, I thought French Hill handled that question particularly well. Uh, you know, he, he obviously says there's there's been a history of these shutdowns and government hasn't you know fallen apart in the process. But that we have a lot of other options, right? And we, we actually need to pass our budgets in the House to catch up to where the Senate is. And we always have a continuing resolution as an option. So he's laying out a lot of different frameworks that are acceptable in the budget showdown process. Uh, and, and aside from actually shutting down government, uh, I actually think it's only a small portion of the Republican caucus who actually think a shutdown is a politically viable option. Uh, and so uh, I, I imagine that it's it's not a widespread sensibility, uh, but th they're tight on time. I mean, as you've pointed out, uh, they've got a budget uh, 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 that's due at the end of the month of September and 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 they have not made much progress on these appropriations in the House. So it's really on them to get their work done. Well, that's, that's a, a story today and, as we've just mentioned, for September. For all of September, uh, you can be on pins and needles as to the threat of a shutdown. And, of course, today, that request for $25 billion in additional funding uh, coming out from the White House being sent to Congress. We're going to stick around with this panel, Jeannie Sheenzano and Rick Davis. I call them our all-stars, uh, to discuss this major ProPublica story, essentially saying that the issues with Clarence Thomas – uh, we're not just limited to Harlan Crow. That's coming up. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 38 destination vacations, including private flights, some on airplanes, some on helicopters, some on 737s. 
That's uh, essentially the major takeaway uh, from the latest story by ProPublica about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. There was some news already about his close relationship with Harlan Crow and uh, and and the expensive travel that he was treated to due to that. Uh, but the latest story adds three more people with backgrounds at Berkshire Hathaway, Blockbuster, Waste Management, uh, background in oil. Essentially, there are there are four. Uh, very wealthy friends of Clarence Thomas, according to the latest ProPublica story. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, looking forward to discussing this with our panel of Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis. Uh, this this adds more to a theme that had already been raised about uh, what kind of travel and what kind of, I don't know if you would call travel a gift, but expensive travel certainly uh, paid for by wealthy friends. Uh, to what extent is that okay? And, and uh, at what point do you uh, get into an ethical conundrum? Uh, guys, I'm curious. I, I guess I should a- start with the simplest question um, because there are all, there's all sorts of talk about a code of ethics, etc. cetera. Uh, Rick Davis, did Clarence Thomas do something wrong according to what we've learned about his friendships and travel uh, with wealthy businessmen? Yeah, I mean, you can debate all day long, you know, were these his friends? Were they, you know, acquaintances? Did they have an interest in front of the Supreme Court? But I think the one thing most people that I've talked to on Capitol Hill, especially in the Senate, uh, agree upon is the lack of transparency in all of that is what's disturbing. I mean, uh, just setting aside the 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 vacations and the time and the, 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 the cost associated with those things, one flight would have cost you know, uh, over $100,000 to charter the same plane. Um, uh, It's mind-boggling. But um, the fact that none of this is actually being reported, uh, you know, with people who work for the the country uh, on the government payroll, uh, even if they're uh, Supreme Court justices, I think are um, uh, one of the issues that really starting to stress out uh, even the most ardent uh, defenders of of Clarence Thomas and the Supreme Court and these kinds of events. Jeannie, what does this say about, you know, a, a lot of courts have an official code of ethics. The Supreme Court does not have something like that. This is, I've heard lawmakers raise this, but there seems to be some, some hesitance uh, for Congress to dictate to the Supreme Court how they should uh, govern their own ethics. Do, does this kind of thing, I guess, move the needle in terms of uh, possibly someday having something more formal set for ethics for uh, Supreme Court justices? Yeah, and and this piece is so stunning. It is a well-sourced piece of journalism. Everybody should read it. It is mind-boggling to look at what he was doing. You sort of wonder how he had time to be ruling on the Supreme Court amidst all of these trips. Um, And the question of does it move the needle, I think it does move the needle. Um, But, of course, the needle doesn't have to be moved too far at this point. The, The Democrats in the Senate Judiciary Committee have been working towards some kind of ethics reform to make these disclosure requirements to pass legislation in this area to strengthen those because what what um the defenders of Clarence Thomas tell us is, of course, the rules are murky, and they do have a point on that. The rules are a little murky. For instance, staying in people's homes may not require disclosure, as they say in the article, and yet flights, cruises, and other things do. So they do need to tighten those. But the problem is Republican 
Republicans in the Senate and I am certain the House are opposed to that. So legislation, unless Demo Democrats take control of the House, is not going to be in the offing, offing. And we already know where the Chief Justice stands because he responded to the Senate Judiciary Committee in the spring saying that they believe that they have disclosure rules that are necessary. And Justice Alito followed that up with the Wall Street Journal saying that he doesn't believe that Congress even has a constitutional right to talk about what another branch co-equal as it is does. And so for those reasons, I think even if they pass legislation, the Supreme Court would likely frown on that. So I don't see something moving forward any further than it is right now, given the situation. So as important as it seems, maybe this is something to keep an eye on in the long run. Uh, let's shift to politics for a little bit. I do have to ask you guys about Joe Manchin, who said on Hoppy Kirkoval's radio show uh, earlier today, he his word was absolutely, he would absolutely think about switching to becoming an independent rather than uh, the most moderate or most conservative Democrat in the Senate. Uh, you know, Rick, I, given your history working for a maverick in John McCain, I, I have to ask, do you see the flirtation with an independent bid by Joe Manchin as a political necessity? I mean, could he possibly win re-election in West Virginia again as a Democrat? You know, I think it's 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 very difficult. I mean, look at the the jam that uh, Kristen Cinema, who did switch to become an independent, is having in Arizona. I mean, there's not a single poll out since she did that that indicates that under various scenarios she could actually win re-election. In fact, in most, if not all, the polls I've seen, she ends up third out of three, uh, with the two major parties doing much better. So uh, I don't think West Virginia's politics is significantly different in the sense that. Uh, there is no organized independent party. There is no organized infrastructure around there. And people don't have a history of pulling that independent lever. And so there's an education and a process question that he'd have to address. And and uh, my own view, I'm a big proponent of the two-party system. And, you know, working to reform the Democratic Party is probably a lot more politically sustainable than than venturing out on your own. But then the question is, is he doing this to run for re-election or is he doing it to look for higher office? And that would change the dynamic. Right. Rick, real quick, because the Iowa State Fair is coming up and, and former President Trump will appear with some Florida Republicans, I, I just have to ask, I, I don't know if Iowa is what it used to be, with an eye on Trump, does Iowa matter all that much? Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to matter probably more than usually because there are so many people who actually have affixed their political future to it in the presidential campaign. And so regardless of whether Trump wins or loses the Iowa uh, uh, contest, the question is who comes in second and third is going to still matter. And that'll right. matter to people in New Hampshire. Coming up, I want to keep our panel around to ask about Alabama. Yes, interesting polling out of Alabama, of all places. It's not just uh, a red state. It certainly is a red state. But we'll get to that. Thanks again to our panelists, Jeannie Shinzano and Rick Davis. Stick around for a few more minutes. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Department of Justice says that a January 2nd, 2024 trial date would, in their words, vindicate the public's strong interest in a speedy trial regarding attempts to interfere with the 2020 election. I'm here with our Bloomberg politics contributors, Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis. Uh, curious what you guys make of that. I, I guess, for one, based on what we know uh, about this case, Jeannie, do you think it's likely that they get that? Or is they is this wishful thinking by DOJ to try to move through this case as quickly as possible? You know, I, I do think that they have a strong reason to try to move through it. I also think the judge is probably going to listen to what Trump's attorneys say and split the baby, so to speak. So I don't suspect they'll get a January 2nd start. But what this does mean is we are looking at a really severe collision between the election calendar, January 15th being the Iowa caucuses, and they ramp up from there, and these trials, because he is facing already seven tri five trials in seven months. And that doesn't include this one. And and then, of course, what happens next week in Fulton County in Georgia. So it's going to be a collision course for sure. Very briefly, Rick Davis, as we try to juggle all of these legal challenges in the minds of voters and, and what kind of political threat it is for the former president, is it the 2020 issues? Is it the January 6th issues? Is it the classified documents issues? Uh, I mean, what is or are any of those a true uh, political drawback for him? Oh, I Very think quickly. they're all a distraction in general. As the public learns more about each one, they'll take a different approach to them. But right now, I think a lot of Republican voters are saying, wow, how much of a distraction is this? And is it going to allow Joe Biden to slip the noose and, and get reelected? Right. Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis, thanks so much for your insights. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.